Welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and welcome to the Thanksgiving episode. So, in researching Thanksgiving and trying to find some horror, scary stories about this, mostly I ended up with people being served, you know, like a a turkey that didn't use oil, somebody accidentally swapped it with soap, or somebody dropped the potatoes in the toilet but still served them as mashed potatoes, things like that, which are pretty crazy in and of themselves. But in this episode, I kind of want to go through the ghosts of Thanksgiving. Everything from the history to some ghost stories, and probably ending in New England, in the oldest part of the country, and hearing some of those legends. All right. With that being said, let's hop into the first article. We go over to Ghost City Tours, where they have the dark truths behind the first Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving has become an important institution in America, from roasted turkey and pumpkin pie to arguments across the dinner table with your out-of-touch aunt an always popular 3.30 nap. Nothing says you're thankful like this homegrown holiday. In fact, Thanksgiving is much more than just a holiday. It's a piece of American history, started by the pilgrims on their arrival in the New World, and held to celebrate both their first year of independence from England and the Anglican Church, as well as the relationships they had to build with their new friends, the Wampanoag, or so you thought. Despite the reality of American history being so much more complicated, especially when it comes to relations, if you can call them that, with the Native people who occupied this land long before we moved in uninvited, there's an even larger misconception about the origin of Thanksgiving. Regardless of what we may have learned from elementary school teachers, television, and maybe even our out-of-touch aunt, there's another story that predates the Puritan pilgrimage to the New World, one that goes decades further back to the Spanish explorers and the first true European settlement in America, St. Augustine. Before the Pilgrims Many think of the Pilgrims as the first Europeans to build a community on North American soil, but that is far from the truth. On their arrival in 1620, another colony in America was already 50 years old and thriving, and many miles south of what is now Florida's eastern coastline. The colony is St. Augustine, founded in 1565 by Spanish Admiral Pedro Menendez de Alvils. It has been occupied ever since even despite changing hands between the Spanish and the British several times before Florida was acquired by the U.S. in 1819, making it by far the oldest continuous occupied European settlement in the Americas. In fact, St. Augustine is a city of firsts. The first city government, first school, first hospital, first city plan, first parish church, and even the first mission to the native populations. When it comes to the first European influences in Americas, the ancient city has all the bases covered. But what about Thanksgiving? There's no arguing that the Spanish settlers in St. Augustine predated the pilgrims in New England, 
But Thanksgiving is about more than just who got there first. It's about coming together with people you care about, making new friends, and celebrating everything you have to be thankful for. We all know how the Pilgrims' first Thanksgiving played out. We've seen it time and time again. But what about the Spanish and St. Augustine? Could they have been the real first Thanksgiving? Turns out they did. And long before the Pilgrims plucked their first turkey, the Spanish colonizers in St. Augustine were celebrating how thankful they were to be alive and healthy in the New World. In fact, this celebration, held in the form of a Catholic Mass, followed by a giant feast, was not that different from the notorious meal that put the Pilgrims on the map. Mass of Thanksgiving when Menendez de Aviles and 800 Spanish settlers first came ashore in 1565, they had a lot to celebrate. Not only had they survived the long voyage, which was an accomplishment in those days, but they were also coming ashore during the nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, a very important day according to the church calendar. The landing party led by St. Augustine's first pastor, Father Francisco Lopez de Mint. Doza, Grajales, came together and celebrated the traditional feast day with a mass of thanksgiving, a religious ceremony that would look similar to a Spanish Catholic mass held today. It wasn't until after the ceremony, though, that the real thanksgiving would commence, as Menendez de Aviles not only laid out a great feast for both him, his men and the settlers, but also the Timucua a native tribe who they had traded with in the past and had met upon their arrival. The meal, which would have looked much different than traditional turkey and stuffing we know today, would have likely been made up of the same food the settlers had been enjoying on the voyage. This included hard sea biscuits, red wine, and hearty stew made from salted pork and garbanzo beans, known as cocido. Cocido. If any traditional Thanksgiving options had been available, it would have been brought by the Timakua, who not only had access to turkey, but to other staples such as maize, corn, beans, and squash. However, it's not documented whether or not they were part of the meal's preparation. They did, on the other hand, participate in mass. What exactly the Timakua must have thought of the foreign religious ceremony is not known, but in his journal, Father Lopez noted that the Indians imitated all they saw done, likely in an attempt to initiate a peaceful relationship with the Spanish. Of course, from the Spanish's perspective, this communion with the Timacua would have been little more than the first step in an aggressive Christian conversion strategy but the similarities between their peace offering and the pilgrims breaking bread with the Wampanoag in Plymouth cannot be ignored. This, coupled with all other similarities, still leaves most of us with one question. Why isn't the Thanksgiving feast in St. Augustine recognized as America's first? Rewriting History Despite the event being well documented, the irony of a Catholic Mass being the true inspiration of the Thanksgiving holiday and not the famous feast of the Puritan pilgrims, who were notoriously anti-Catholic, is not lost on history, and has even led to a great deal of controversy. 
It is only recently, thanks to the hard work of a few historians in Florida, that the real history has finally made it to the mainstream. Now, many other historians have started to back the claim that St. Augustine, not Plymouth, is the true source of the American tradition. However, tradition is tradition, and the story of the pilgrims and the Wampanoag has become so closely entwined with the holiday and its folklore that the historical accuracy has taken a backseat to time-honored festivities and beloved cultural motifs. Today, the only memory of the real first Thanksgiving is marked by a 250-foot cross at the mission of Nombre de Dios, a small church that sits at the original landing site of the settlers, just 300 yards north of the famously haunted Castillo de San Marcos, where the rest of the city's sordid history has lingered for more than three centuries. Haunted Memories With such a long and complicated past, there is no shortage of restless spirits in St. Augustine, from the haunted hotels to pirate poltergeists, and perhaps everything in between. There's not a square inch of the ancient city that does not hold some vestige of the people that came before us. Considering so much haunted history, it would be hard to believe that some vestige of the first Thanksgiving hasn't been left behind, or even attached itself to one of the many buildings that are still tied to the holiday's roots. Well, maybe it has. The settlers themselves that participated in the first Thanksgiving may not haunt the city, but the descendants of the Timakua, who once greeted them in peace, certainly do. Despite friendly relations during the first Mass of Thanksgiving, it wasn't long before the Spanish's relationship with the Timakua began to sour. Proof of this fragile relationship still stands today in the form of the Castillo de San Marcos, which was not only built from the labor of the Timakua, but at one point served as an internment prison for those who would not concede to Spanish rule. Not just the Timakua either, but the Seminole, the Apache, and many others as well. Because of this, many natives' lives were lost at the Castillo, a lasting reminder of how the first Thanksgiving, as well as the values it tried to represent, quickly disintegrated, a theme that would unfortunately play out a thousand miles north with the pilgrims in New England. Of the Native American spirits that are left behind, a grim reminder of many tribes' disintegrations at the hands of the plague, wars, and the Spanish, and most well-known linger in the Castillo de San Marcos itself, only a few hundred yards from the first Thanksgiving. There, the spirits of Native American men call out from the jail cells and torture chambers of old. Some even speak of a Seminole chief known as Askeola, who wanders the grounds at night and has been seen jumping from the ramparts, perhaps still hoping for freedom. It just goes to show that while St. Augustine may have been the home of the real first Thanksgiving, it came at a cost, and one that we are still paying for to this day. So whether it was the pilgrims in Plymouth or the Spanish in St. Augustine, what is important is understanding the truth behind the complicated ho holiday. A True Dark History Behind Thanksgiving by Liz Schumer 
American Thanksgiving is typically considered a time to eat mashed mountains of mashed potatoes, count our blessings, and maybe toss around pigskins with the cousins, or watch our favorite teams do the same. But it's also important to remember the history of the holiday. And the first Thanksgiving wasn't all peace, love, and pass the gravy. While the settlers of Plymouth and their allies from the Wampanoag tribe really did gather in 1821 for an epic three-day feast to celebrate the settlers' first successful harvest. That's far from the entire story. In elementary school, most of us probably learned that the English religious exiles began establishing civilization in the New World, winning over the local tribes with promises of friendship. Then, the friendly Native Americans taught the new arrivals how to grow crops to sustain their burgeoning society from that day forward. Well, not quite. The real story is way more complicated, not to mention a lot less kid-friendly. The fact is, the piece that brought the Wampanoag and settlers together at the table wasn't as neat and tidy as we like to believe. A lot of bloodshed took place before and after the first feast. Today, many Native Americans and others mark Thanksgiving as a solemn day of remembrance instead of celebration. Here's what really went down after the plates were cleared in Plymouth, Massachusetts. At least 100 people came to dinner. If you're cooking for a big crowd this year, take comfort in the fact that more than 100 came to the first Thanksgiving, and they didn't even have running water, never mind a dishwasher. At least 90 Native men and 50 Englishmen came to the feast. Plymouth Plantation Colonial Foodways Culinary Kathleen Wall told Time, The Native people dined sitting on the ground, like they did at home, and the English ate at the table, like they did at theirs. The group likely played marksmanship games and ran foot races in between dining on deer, geese, turkey, and other fowl. The festivities also lasted three days, since it took the Wampanoag, or the Wampanoag, a solid two to walk there. So yes, overnight guests were also long-standing Thanksgiving tradition. The, Wamp- the Wampanoag leader brokered peace. The Wampanoag leader named Massasoit first negotiated a treaty between the Plymouth settlers and the Wampanoag tribe in 1820, which included an agreement that no one from either group would harm anyone from the other. They also agreed to leave their weapons at home when trading to to further ensure peaceful commerce. For about 10 years, Massasoit and the Pilgrims remained allies, trading English goods for Wampanoag land access to natural resources, and other assets. But after Massasoit passed away in 1661 and his son, Wamsuta, took over, tensions began to simmer again. In the years between 1630 to 1642 alone, about 25,000 European colonizers arrived, while a devastating plague cut the native population by more than half. Wamsuta himself died mysteriously in 1662 while visiting the Puritans to discuss gathering unrest between the two groups. Atlas Obscura reports, His successor, Metacomet, only fanned the flames. Violating a treaty led to bloodshed. 
1675, three natives were executed after killing a man who had served as a translator to the settlers, which only further fanned the flames of distrust between the two groups. Metacome feared the natives would lose more land to their neighbors and build a coalition of various native tribes to protect themselves and their resources. By the fall of 1675, the coalition members began to clash with settlers, attacking settlements in Connecticut and Massachusetts. The Narangonset tribe wanted to remain neutral, but wouldn't give up Wampanoag, who had taken refuge in their encampment, or turn away women, children, or the elderly or infirm from that tribe who came to them seeking shelter from the conflict. As a result, the Puritan forces attacked the Narragansett stronghold, killing up to 600 natives and 150 settlers in the bloody battle and its aftermath. The conflict further devastated native populations. What became known as King Philip's War, ensured so named after Metacomet's English moniker, the subsequent conflicts decimated both the native tribes and the colonies. Wampanoag abducted settlers and held them in ransom, and settlers pillaged and destroyed native villages. Much of the colonies were, born, were burned and looted, taking decades to fully recover. An article in the Historical Journal of Massachusetts says that the war could have claimed as many as 30% of the English population and half of the Native Americans then living in New England. It ended with Metacome was killed, beheaded, and dismembered, according to It Happened in Rhode Island. His remaining allies were also executed or sold into slavery in the West Indies. The colonists impaled King Philip's head on a spike and displayed it in Plymouth for 25 years as a macabre effigy to the strife. Native people never really recovered. This wasn't the last or only conflict between Native people and the colonizers. Other wars raged in Virginia, Connecticut, New York, and elsewhere, and the Native American population has never really recovered. For the thriving societies that were already living in what's now the United States when Europeans arrived, the settlers' arrival wasn't the beginning of a new world, but the end of one. For that reason, Native Americans and supporters have gathered at noon on Coles Hill in Plymouth to commemorate a National Day of Mourning on Thanksgiving Day since 1970. Participants of the National Day of Mourning honor Native ancestors and the struggles of Native people to survive today. It's a day of remembrance, spiritual connection, and protest against the racism and oppression that Native Americans have suffered and continue to experience today. This year, spare a thought for the Native people before tucking into your turkey and remember where the history of Thanksgiving really came from. All right. That was an article from Good Housekeeping. Now we take a turn into the spooky stories. So, of course, I go to my tried and true Reddit. So this is five true scary Thanksgiving stories. Number one. 
The Barn. This is a weird story that happened back when I was a teenager. My grandparents had a really small farm located in a small hollow. It wasn't a commercial farm, just something they had to support themselves. However, when they got older and it was more difficult for them to maintain the farm, they quit using the barn. It just sort of sat there and was used as a storage area mainly. Every Thanksgiving and Christmas, we would go out to our parent grandparents' house. This story took place on Thanksgiving. I was 15 years old, and that's the age when I began not enjoying hanging out with the adults in my family anymore. Suddenly, listening to the stories of when I was a kid or when my parents were kids were just not as entertaining anymore. We had Thanksgiving dinner early. It was about 2 p.m. Afterwards, I was beginning to feel a bit antsy. I let my parents know that I was going to go out and explore the hollow a little bit. It had been a while since I had done so. I didn't even think about asking my younger brother and sister if they wanted to go. It was fine because honestly, I felt like being by myself. I knew that I didn't really have a lot of time to explore before it got dark. So I set out and made sure I knew how far I could go and still get back before the sun had set. I didn't do the greatest job at it though. If you've ever been out exploring the woods, you might probably know what I mean. You can get easily fascinated in the woods and the hills and lose track of time. It got very, very dark before I was anywhere close to home. By the time I got back to the farm, it had been dark for at least an hour. I had never been out by the barn when it was dark outside. It looked incredibly creepy. Being a teenage boy, I of course liked scary things. I thought then, the thought then occurred to me that if the barn was creepy looking on the outside, it must be really creepy on the inside. So I decided to check it out. Getting into the barn was simple. My grandparents rarely locked the door of their house, much less thought of locking the barn. They lived in a really safe area where crime was pretty much unheard of. The barn did have one of those heavy wooden locks on it. I honestly have no idea what they are called, but I was able to pull the wooden beam up. When I opened the barn door, it made a horribly loud creaking noise. I knew my grandparents had likely not been in the barn for years, so I was surprised when I was able to get the door open at all. I figured the hinges had nearly be rusted shut. As I mentioned, the barn was old, and even when I, it was in use, my grandparents would only have been in it during the day, so there was no light. Thank God I live in the era of smartphones, though, because I, of course, had a flashlight on my smartphone. I turned on the flashlight and just marveled at the creepiness. If dark is creepy, then just a minor amount of light, it's much creepier. I was fascinated by all the tools, so many sharp implements. Most of them were hanging up. However, there was a small hatchet lying on a wood bench. It was discolored, and upon closer inspection, I realized that it was coated in dry blood. I didn't know much about slaughtering animals, but I knew my grandparents used to do it often, chickens and pigs and stuff, so I figured that the hatchet was used for that purpose, and never cleaned. The barn had a loft that was filled with hay. I decided to climb the ladder and check it out. When I was shining the light around, it reflected off something buried in the hay. I was wondering if it was another tool or something and decided to check it out. Going over to it, I began moving the hay. 
I screamed when the empty eye sockets of a long dead corpse were staring directly at me. I fell backwards and nearly fell off the loft. I quickly climbed down the ladder and ran out of the barn without closing the door. I rushed into the house and told my parents and grandparents what I had seen. My father, a huge man, like Hulk Hogan-sized, really went out to confirm what I told him, and my grandparents phoned the sheriff's office. The body had been in the loft about three years. It had several hatchet wounds on it that the police told us were caused by the hatchet I had seen on the bench, the hatchet that I had picked up. Not only had I found a dead body, but I held an actual murder weapon in my hand. That is truly disturbing to me. But it wasn't nearly as disturbing as the realization my grandparents had that they had lived in the house for three years without knowing a dead body was in the barn. No one was ever caught. And to this day, we have no idea who killed that man and why. All right. Very creepy. Let's take a short break and get right back into the other stories. All right, jumping back into our Reddit stories. Number two, alone. I thought that going to college right out of high school was intimidating. I came from a small town, went to a huge college with enrollment of over 50,000 students. It was crazy to me how active the campus was all the time. If I thought that was a culture shock, though, it was nothing compared to what happened during Thanksgiving break. I didn't have the kind of money to be able to go home, so I remained in my dorm alone during the break. I didn't realize that this also had me one of the few people to not only be alone in the dorm building, but the entire campus. What had so recently been a metropolitan of people became a barren wasteland. If the loneliness wasn't enough, a snowstorm hit the night before Thanksgiving. I recall waking up in the morning about 7 a.m. and looking out across a completely barren and desolate campus. Now I suppose this doesn't seem weird at all, but it was a complete shock to me. Honestly, I spent the entire day on Wednesday in my dorm room looking out over the campus. I really didn't even have the nerve to go out. However, I guess I began to getting stir-crazy on Thanksgiving. I got myself out got myself a frozen turkey dinner that I was going to make in the microwave, but I really wanted to get out. There was a Denny's on campus, so I thought I would go and have dinner there. The dinner went fine, but I was uneasy because there was another guy in the restaurant who wouldn't stop staring at me. It made me uncomfortable. I normally like to take my time in a restaurant, but couldn't bring myself to do that here. So immediately after I was done, I left. Walking home, I kept nervously looking over my shoulder. It didn't take long before I noticed that the guy was following me. He was walking faster than I was. By the time I got to my dormitory doorway, he was already up the front steps. He called for me to hold the door for him, but I didn't. He seemed pretty old for a person living in the dorms. But if he was a student, he would have an electronic keycard to let him in. I looked back as I went up the stairs and saw him standing in the foyer. I'm not sure how much later it was, but I heard knocking on my door. I got up and looked out the peephole and was surprised to see the man from outside standing in front of my door. I wasn't sure how he'd gotten in, nor how he found my room. 
Rather than acknowledging him, however, I went back to my desk quietly. He knocked a few more times and then left. About five hours later, I heard another knock at the door. At first, I, of course, expected it to be that man again. However, when I looked at the peephole, it was the campus police. I let them in. One of the other students that was in my dorm building had gotten attacked earlier in the day, and they wanted to know if I had seen anything suspicious. I explained my experience to them. They had arrested a suspect, and I had to go with them to see if I could identify them. It indeed was the man who had followed me home from Denny's. He apparently had got door-to-door knocking and had known, hadn't known where I was. He eventually came across someone who opened the door, and the person did pay a terrible price. That's creepy. Number three, the parade. I want this story to be anonymous, so I'm not even going to tell you where it happened. What I do have to tell you is that the city it happened in has a really large Thanksgiving Day parade every year. I'd never been one of them before, but I always watched it on television. I went ahead and decided to go one year. I couldn't find anyone who wanted to go with me. None of my family or friends wanted to spend Thanksgiving standing in the cold, I guess. By the time I had gotten to the parade route, it was really, really packed. I was worried whether or not I would be able to see that well. I'm not particularly tall, but I was able to find a spot behind another group of people that gave me a pretty good view of the parade route. I hadn't been there very long when I noticed someone who was, for some reason, just caught my eye. I can't say there was anything unusual about him, really. He was rather big and a little unkempt. But there was just something about him. In fact, I found myself conscious, continuously looking over at him. A few times that I was looking at the man, he caught me looking. As most people do when they are caught looking at someone, I quickly looked away each time. But even so, my curiosity got to me eventually. I started looking in his direction again. After a while, I could tell he was getting annoyed. I resolved to try harder not to look at him, but it just made it worse. After a a while, I looked at the man again and noticed he was closer to me than he had been before. I didn't think about it at first because we were in a big crowd watching a parade. People move around in the crowd in no way is unusual. But the more I glanced over at him, the closer and closer to me he kept moving. He was doing it casually, though, making his way around other people. He was definitely coming in my direction. To test and see what he would do, I made my own way through the crowd toward the back of the sidewalk. I glanced at him. He immediately switched course to coming toward me. I was convinced he was coming at me and mildly alarmed. However, I kept telling myself it wasn't anything to worry about. I was in a parade with thousands of people. If the guy was going to try and hurt me, he would get caught pretty quickly. I guess that's the problem with assumptions, though. They really don't take all possible scenarios into account. The man did make his way over. There was only one person separating us when he stopped and went back to look at the parade. I relaxed a bit, but when the man separating us moved, the guy moved up against me. I wasn't about I was about to move before I felt something sharp against my back. He had a knife, and probably because we were in a big crowd, he was able to hide the fact that he was holding it up against my back. To any bystanders, he looked like a guy in a 
crowd watching the parade. He asked me why I was staring at him over and over, and I was too scared to speak at first, but when he asked again and moved the knife, I apologized, telling him I didn't mean to stare. I didn't know why I was looking at him. He told me he didn't believe me, and asked how much Mahone was paying me. I had no idea what he was talking about, or who Mahone was, but he didn't believe me. He really kept pushing the knife, and told me I had better tell him the truth. I heard my voice crack, and I pled to the guy to leave me alone, and I didn't know what he was talking about. I guess my words were somehow heard over the noise of the parade, because two guys looked at us, and then asked the guy what he was doing. I really thought he was just going to stab me then and there, but I guess he figured that he would never be able to do it, and then get away from this crowd. He slipped the knife away and didn't answer, and the two men took off. They didn't go after him, they just made sure I was alright. To this day, I have no idea who McMahon it was, but it doesn't matter. I've been more careful to not stare at people, though. Number four, shelter. I come from very good upbringings. My family had it very good, and I never really had to be without anything. I try to give back as much as possible. I donate a lot of money to the poor, things like that. One of the things I am the proudest of is that on Thanksgiving, I volunteer the entire day at the local homeless shelter. I try to make sure that these much less fortunate people have a good day as possible for them. I stay at the shelter overnight and leave the following morning. One of the sadder things about working in a shelter is seeing the same people year after year. I mean, I guess seeing them makes me happy that they're not dead. But it would be nice if the majority of them were able to get themselves to a place to live and not have to live on the streets anymore. The Thanksgiving 10 years ago is one that I will never forget. There's not a lot of build-up to this story, so I'll apologize for that. The day and evening went as well as it could. There was one guy that I had never seen before, and normally I would not even thought much about that. But he was very annoying and very rude. At one point, he even tried to take the food away from another man. Now, the rules of the shelter were that, I suppose, to remove the man from the shelter for such an act. However, I couldn't bring myself to do that. Not on Thanksgiving. I instead separated the two men and let the guy know that any further aggress aggressive behavior would result in him being removed. The rest of the day and night went fine, as far as I was aware. However, at about 3 in the morning, one of the other homeless guys came into the office. He told me that one of the other sleepers had been stabbed. I ran out into the area, and sure enough, the man who nearly had his food stolen had been stabbed, and he was dead. I turned on the lights and searched around for the guy from dinner, and he wasn't there. I checked the bathroom, and the window was open. He had killed one of the men, and then left as quietly as he could. The most horrific part was that this man was losing his life over something as simple as dinner. Even worse for me was that man would likely still be alive if had followed the rules and removed the man during dinner instead of letting him remain, because that was Thanksgiving. Right. First Thanksgiving alone. I moved out of my parents' house right when I turned 18. Nothing against them, I just wanted to live by myself and live in the city. I got myself a small studio apartment in Chicago. I had to work both the day before and the day after Thanksgiving that year, so I wasn't able to come home. Instead, I had a lonely day in, at home in my apartment. 
I never cooked a Thanksgiving dinner before and really didn't think that I needed that much food, so I got myself a TV dinner. I really hadn't realized how lonely I would actually be, though. In fact, the loneliness was so overwhelming that I began getting cabin fever. I think in actuality, it was just to be around other people, so after I had eaten my TV dinner, I went out and went for a walk. It was cold outside, and there weren't a lot of people out. Since I had moved to the city, it was the first time I had seen literal, not seen literal swarms of people everywhere. I walked around on the street by the bars, but I knew I wouldn't be able to get into any of them. I was out for quite a while before I decided to go back to my apartment and be warm, so I headed back. When I got to my apartment, I put the key in the lock. I opened the door and went in. My apartment was a studio, and the only other room it had was a bathroom. Having walked around the city for a couple hours and not having gone into any buildings, I really had to go to the bathroom. I always kept the bathroom door closed. I went in, didn't turn on the light. I just used the light from the rest of the house. While I was peeing, I had the strangest feeling. I got very uncomfortable and like someone may have been watching me. My bathroom, strangely enough, had a window in it. It was actually on the wall of the shower. So I turned to look out the window, expecting to see a bird or something. Instead, I came eye to eye with the form of a person behind the translucent shower curtain. It was a person, and he was looking directly at me. Startled, I fell backwards. He opened the shower curtain. I scurried backwards out of the bathroom. I made it to my feet and went for the door. However, before I got out, I felt the man grab me from behind. I struggled, but all he did was take me and throw me across the room. He then left the apartment, and the door slammed behind him. I got up as quickly as I could and locked the door. Then I phoned the police. It didn't do any good, really. I noticed several items from my apartment were missing. Apparently, the guy was a burglar and didn't expect me to come back. I just caught him in the act, and he was likely wasn't intent on harming me specifically. Alright, we go back over to Ghost City Tours, exploring the supernatural in early America. As Thanksgiving approaches, many of us are left with a hole in our lives, a hole that was, until recently, filled with ghosts and ghouls and all things gruesome. Gone are the days of carving pumpkins, hoarding candy, and honing our skills at amateur paranormal investigation. All we have left now is slow and torturous wait until next October, or do we? Here at Ghost City Tours, we know as well as anyone that a true fan of the strange and unusual can always find time to poke and prod their ghostly curiosity, no matter what time of year it is. Just because Halloween is behind us doesn't mean we have to put away the flashlights, EMF meters, and our boundless curiosity for the dead. Thanksgiving, like any other holiday, is steeped in tradition, but it is also the product of horrifying history and petrifying politics and a veritable smorgasbord of horrible deeds and untimely deaths, making it as fine of a backdrop as any when it comes to probing for paranormal. In fact, this holiday season, you might find yourself wondering just how far back our frightful fixations go. Has our curiosity about death and the afterlife always been there, or is it a product of modern times? Most importantly, did early Americans have the same ghostly obsessions that we do? 
Well, as experts on the matter, we're here to answer the hard questions and keep with traditions. What better place is there to start with some of America's earliest European colonizers? Not to mention the very roots of this bloody and complicated holiday, the Pilgrims. Right, I think we all know, but who were the Pilgrims? The Pilgrims were a group of 46 separatist Puritans who, fleeing a corrupt Anglican church and religious persecution in England, came to North America to establish a new colony where they could live their lives according to their own religious laws and values. Aboard the Mayflower, they arrived on November 11, 1620, first laying anchor near Cape Cod. Their original destination was meant to be the Hudson River in New York, where they had contracted land to build their colony. But after bitter storms blocked their route south and a skirmish with local Native Americans soured their attitude toward the Cape, pilgrims instead sailed to Plymouth Harbor, where they decided to settle. They are often remembered as the first permanent North American colony, which is far from the truth as America has been home to a diverse population of different nations covering the entire continent for over 10,000 years. Still, they became a staple in American history, as well as the source of the Thanksgiving holiday we now celebrate. The story goes that, in celebration of their first fall harvest since settling in America, the pilgrims held a great feast to thank God for their bounty. In an attempt to solidify a relationship with the locals, they also invited members of the Wampanoag tribe to attend, a gathering that would be known as the First Thanksgiving. Of course, the true history of this meeting is still debated among historians, and it's generally understood that this version of a peaceful gathering between colonizer and natives has been thoroughly whitewashed throughout history, downplaying the initial role that the pilgrims had in what would soon become an irrefutable genocide. Regardless of their role in history, or the authenticity of Thanksgiving's humble beginnings, the Pilgrims and their religious outlooks have shaped American culture. Religious Beliefs Like the Protestants before them, who broke away from the Catholic Church during the Protestant Reformation, the Puritans believed that God expected them to live according to the Scriptures, and that everyone had the right to discuss and interpret the Bible themselves. They believed one could even depart from the Book of Common Prayer and speak to God directly. Going a step further, the Puritans came to believe that God had formed a unique agreement with them and them alone, and it was their newfound mission to completely reform the Anglican Church, which had become corrupt, as well as set a good example for the rest of England. As we've mentioned, the pilgrims who came to America were a form of Puritans known as Separatists, die-hard believers who felt that the Anglican Church had fallen so far from grace that they no longer had a chance of being saved, even with their help, and must be abandoned completely. The Pilgrims, as they became known for their religious pilgrimage to the New World, left England because of not only this belief, but because the persecution they met from the Anglican Church, as well as non-separatist Puritans, who felt that they were abandoning their godly duties. Did pilgrims believe in ghosts? There's no easy answer. Being Puritans by faith, the first pilgrims who settled in North America believed in strict seasoning of the natural order, leaning away from the kind of magic and superstition that was more common within the Catholic Church. 
from whom they wished to distance themselves as much as possible, which left ghosts, at least in religious practice, out of their realm of possibility. According to the dogmatic laws they believed in, the soul existed only in the body, in God's kingdom, and down in the pits of hell. There was no in-between. In fact, their disbelief in the concept of purgatory, which is where most Christian ghosts' lore stems from, was one of the key components that separates their faith from that of the Catholic Church. So, as far as the traditional ghost goes, the answer is no, technically. Of course, an official church stance and personal beliefs on an individual aren't always picture-perfect reflection, and it is noted by many historians that time in America's as well as the mixing in of other faiths through the country's growing diversity, did lead to softening of some strict Puritans' beliefs. Which, in short, tells us that the Puritans weren't all as cookie-cutter as we might have thought. It certainly wasn't unusual to find stories, songs, and rec records of strange phenomena that surely have caught the attention of the modern ghost hunter. History tells us that human spirits weren't the usual go-to answer for these strange occurrences, that doesn't leave them out completely. Of course, for those who were faithfully ignoring the possibility of ghosts, there were always classic Puritan fallbacks they could rely on. Demons and Miracles The concept of lingering spirits might have been the average pilgrim's cup of tea, but demons and miracles were. It was one of those two things that most paranormal phenomena were usually attributed to. In a similar way, that modern ghost enthusiasts will separate spirits into two categories, benevolent or malevolent. The pilgrims saw paranormal phenomena falling within one of two realms, either an act of God or demonic exploits. If something went bump in the night, demon. If the dog was barking at the corner of the barn without explanation, demon. And as you can imagine, with every inexplicable good deed, paranormal or not, a miracle was a convenient and faith-affirming way to explain the unexplainable. How often did Puritans overlook ghostly shenanigans because of their religious beliefs? Some would say quite often, but it's important to consider that our perception of otherworldly is constantly changing, and just because some labels may go out of style and new ones may be adopted does not mean that the strange occurrences themselves are overlooked. The pilgrims might have not believed in ghosts at that time in the same way that we do, but nonetheless, they saw strange and unusual things in their daily lives and were looking for an explanation to make unbelievable believable. With that in mind, it's not difficult to see how the pilgrims, in their own right, were some of modern America's first ghost hunters. That is, of course, until witches started to fall into their crosshairs, but that is a different story. Right. Let's take a break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
All right. So now we go over to WBSM, which looks like a news article, to an article they have, The Ghosts of Pil Pilgrims Lurk on Plymouth's Burial Hill by Tim Weisberg. Cemeteries usually mark the end of someone's life, but in the case of Burial Hill in Plymouth, Massachusetts, it's a cemetery that marks a beginning. It was the beginning of America as we know it, of our country and our history as a people. I don't want to gloss over the eventual near extinction of the native people that followed, but that's something for another time and for other legends. When the Pilgrims first arrived in Plymouth in 1620, it's well documented that they barely made it through that first winter. In fact, many did not. 52 out of the 102 that arrived on Plymouth died that winter and were interred at Coles Hill. Further excavation of Coles Hill in the 18th and 19th century led to some of their remainings being dug up, dug up, and they were interred in the 1920s in the a sarcophagus on the hill in the spot believed to be where they originally found. Some believe that could be why the now defunct Plymouth National Wax Museum at the top of Coles Hill has so many strange shadows lurking around and other creepy phenomena. But there was another hill just a short distance away rising even higher over the shores of Plymouth. It would be known as Burial Hill. But while there are numerous other haunted cemeteries and graveyards across the country, this might be America's first. Originally, the Pilgrims had built their first fort atop Burial Hill, as it gave them an ample view of much of the colony below. But it stood on a central focal point for the Pilgrims. It was also used as a meeting house, a church, and a courthouse. Scholars believe that around 1637, the pilgrims also began using it as a graveyard. Here are the plots of some of the Mayflower's passengers. Many of their grave markers lost to the ravages of time create a spooky reminder of the sacrifice of those early settlers. It is here that Mayflower descendant Thomas Southward Howland is buried. According to legend, Howland met his end when he invoked the ire of a witch Mother Cree. Her mother crew who had been living on his property without his permission. Upon forcing her to leave, Mother Crew warned him, Make your peace because you will not see another sunset. They'll dig your grave on Burial Hill. That's exactly what they did when he fell from his horse and died the very next day. There's also a mass grave under an obelisk where the bodies of 70 men are buried following the 1778 wreck of the Brigadier General Arnold, a ship which ran aground during a blizzard. Even though residents of Plymouth could see the stranded ship, they couldn't go to it for days because of the harsh weather, and by the time they arrived, most of the men had frozen to death. Captain James McGee was one of the few who survived, but he asked to be buried with his crew. And although it is believed he was not buried there, to this day he is still reportedly seen roaming Burial Hill. Numerous other graves dating back to Pilgrim days are scattered through the cemetery, which saw its last burial in 1957. Right? At the foot of one side of Burial Hill is the John Carver Inn, named for the first governor of the Plymouth Colony. 
On the same site during the American Revolution stood a house that was inhabited by medical students who would sneak up Burial Hill at night and rob the graves for cadavers on which to practice. Wow, that's so messed up. Grave robbing was nothing new to Plymouth. In fact, the pilgrims survived the first harsh winter in part by stealing food offerings they had been buried alongside deceased natives. By the time of the revolution, it was a major crime. The medical students were banished, but the victims of their crime remained. To this day, their spirits still roam the halls of the third floor of the John Carver Inn. In particular, torment those who stay in room 309. Also at the base of Burial Hill was Town Square, where there is a stone marker in remembrance of Medicom, or as he was called by the English, King Philip. Medicom was the son of the great Sachem Massasoit, was an ally to the pilgrims in their earliest days. Yet Massasoit and his sons, Medicom and Wamsuta, watched as the English began to convert their people over to Christianity, the so-called praying Indians, and attempted to obliterate the Wampanoag culture. Following the death of Massasoit and the suspected murder of Wamsuta, Medicom became Sachem and eventually engaged in a brief but bloody war with the colonists, the deadliest war per capita ever fought on their soil. It ended with Medicom's capture and the head was placed on a spike in Town Square, where it stood for 20 years. Also on Town Square, you'll find two churches. One, the First Parish Church of Plymouth, in the same church founded by the Pilgrims in 1620, with a building erected in 1899. The other, Church of the Pilgrimage, it's also descended from the Pilgrims, was the result of a schism in the original church back in 1801. Their church building was erected in 1840. The Church of the Pilgrimage is known to have ghostly activity going on inside and believed spirit communication. So whether it be pilgrim ghosts, disinterred bodies for medical experiments, decapitated Native Americans, or whatever else may be haunting Plymouth's burial hill, should really be surprised. Should we really be surprised that so much ghostly activity is happening there? After all, there is a power to our history, not to mention the pilgrims. Also, happened to land smack dab in the middle of the Bridgewater Triangle. Bridgewater. There is a region in southeastern Massachusetts known as the Bridgewater Triangle, a term coined by researcher and cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman in the 1970s, and first published in his 1983 book, Mysterious America. In it, he chronicled an area of high amount of paranormal activity just outside of Boston, which he dubbed the Bridgewater Triangle. Because of the concentration of reports of ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, and more in the area, around West Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, and Bridgewater proper. In 1978, Joseph de Andred was walking with his friends in the woods of Bridgewater. He said a voice inside his head told him to turn around, and when he did, he saw the mysterious creature, commonly known as Bigfoot, walking behind him. Although it walked away before Deodred could get close, it led him to 
spend the rest of his life researching the creature. Bridgewater is also infamous for its UFO activity as well. Many feel these can be explained by the fact that the town is right in the flight path of planes coming in and out of Boston's Logan International Airport. Except the UFO reports go all the way back to 1639 and were chronicled by none other than the Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor, John Withrop. One of the most famous sightings came in the spring of 1979 when WHDH reporters Jerry Lopez and Steve Sabrakia witnessed strange lights in the sky at the intersection of Route 24 and Route 106 before encountering a low-flying mysterious object. Lopez says that was shaped like a baseball home plate and was close enough that he felt he could throw a rock at it. Easton. Norton Police Sergeant Thomas Downey was driving home in Easton following his shift on a late summer night in 1971 when he spotted a giant bird in the area, ironically known as Bird Hill, just at the edge of the Hockamock Swamp. Downey claimed that the creature saw him and shot straight up into the sky, but not before he observed it, stood over six feet tall with a wingspan of eight to twelve feet. Many think Downey saw something similar to the legendary Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, but Native Americans in Massachusetts have long had a legend of Thunderbird, a man-sized bird believed to possess supernatural abilities. Rainham. The Rainham Towiton area encircles the mysterious area known as the Hockamock Swamp. Nobody is exactly sure what Hockamock means, but the legend, common legend is that a Native American word for a place where spirits dwell. Either way, the natives are said to have revered and feared the swamp, and considered the reports that come from that area, it's easy to see why. Despite all the development that has taken place around the swamp, there are many parts of it that have been untouched by humans for a long time. That is where the cryptic creatures are believed to dwell. Not only has that been where Sasquatch sightings in the swamp area, but other creatures thought impossible to live in this region have been reported there, including giant snakes, big cats, and mentioned previously, thunderbirds. Freetown? While some say that Hockamock Swamp is the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle, others argue that it instead the Freetown State Forest that seems to be the dark center of the paranormal phenomena in the area. There is a legend of the Lady of the Ledge, which suggests that a Native American princess told by her sachem father that she would not be with a white man she loved threw herself from Asinet Ledge and fell to her death below. As such, people who visit the ledge report seeing her spirit, dressed all in white, searching for her lost love. Others also report that despite never having suicidal thoughts, standing on the edge of the ledge will find themselves overcome with a desire to jump. The legend of the Lady of the Ledge is slightly debunked by the fact that the ledge was actually created by a quarry that dug out granite from the area in the early 20th century but that doesn't discount the sightings and experiences people have had there. In addition to ghosts, UFOs, and Bigfoot sightings are common in Freetown State Forest, as well as 
profile rock is it isn't too far from the Asinet ledge as the crow flies. There's even a story of a man who lives nearby, Akushnet, who says he was abducted and tattooed by aliens. The Freetown State Forest has also been the site of some horrific true crime, horrific true crime events, cult activity, and more man-made terrors. Of course, the Freetown State Forest is best known for the creepy creatures known as Wukpudgies, which go back to Wapanoag lore. While interactions with the small demon-like creatures have been reported less and less frequently in modern times, that hasn't stopped them from becoming unofficial mascots of Freetown, including a tongue, a drawing tongue-in-cheek warnings from local police. Rehoboth. While much of the Bridgewater Triangle features a variety of paranormal phenomena, Rehoboth seems to be ghost central. There are multiple allegedly haunted locations that paranormal investigators such as Greenville Paranormal Researchers Andrew Lake have chronicled over the years, including the region around the Shad Factory Pond and the Village Cemetery. There's also the story of the Hornbine School, a historical school building where people have reportedly seen a ghostly class in session through its windows. But Rehoboth's most famous ghost is that of the redhead hitchhiker on Route 44, which is said to haunt the roadway right at the Seekonk-Rehoboth line. Nobody's sure who the spirit is. Seen standing on the side of the road in, her, in his dirty jeans and flannel shirt, along with his long, shaggy red hair and beard. But when he puts his thumb out for a ride and the driver pulls over to give him a lift, they're never, se- they're never the same again. He will soon break out into his disturbing laughter before disappearing back from the back seat of the vehicle. Which is even freakier is that the reports of the roadside phantom seem to be on the rise. Dartmouth. Dartmouth fall, may fall slightly outside of the defined Bridgewater Triangle by some researchers' maps, but its border with the Freetown State Forest probably plays a part into all the weird activity that happens there. There are hauntings such as creepy tales from Lincoln Park, the legends that have popped up over the years about UMass Dartmouth has designed being designed as a temple to Satan, but Dartmouth's biggest contribution to the paranormal world is probably its connections to the world of UFOs. Round Hill was reportedly a site frequented by visitors from beyond as Colonel Edward Green allowed MIT and others to conduct electromagnetic experiments on its grounds, drawing the aliens to the skies above, south coast, to which they frequent return even to this day. Alright, that was a cool article. We go over to gothichorrorstories.com, where they have an article, Haunted Plymouth, the Macabre, history of Plymouth, Massachusetts, where pilgrim and Native American spirits haunt side by side. Haunted Plymouth has been known as America's hometown over more than four centuries, and its history stretches back even further than that. Ghosts and hauntings seem to attach themselves to locations over time. Houses, 
buildings of all sorts, even wood and entire towns. Plymouth has been, seen its share of real-life horror stories, and so it's a perfect place to find the supernatural. One of the first Europeans carved out a settlement in the New World. Such a venture was bound to have, from the start, to be a host of the type of macabre events which those who move into new territory inevitably find themselves up against. Little did those first pilgrims realize the darkness which already lay over the abandoned Indian village, populated only with bones and skulls, which they chose to make their home. Sold into slavery in Spain, a Wampanoag tribesman makes his way home to discover his people's tragic fate. European captains visiting the shore of North America prior to settlement would often take Native American prisoners to later sell as slaves. In 1614, a number of Wampanoag men were taken prisoner by the explorer Thomas Hunt and sold as slaves in Spain. One of the slaves, Tis Quantum, was eventually freed and traveled to England, working for a number of years as a shipbuilder. During his time in Europe, Tis Quantum became known as Squanto, the name which he is most remembered in history. Looking to find his way home, and now fluent in English, he got to the position of interpreter for an expedition, led by explorer Captain Robert Gorgeous. While in, the New, while in New England, the captain and his crew were killed by Chief Massasoit and his Wantapoeg men, who spared Squanto. Once free, he made his way back to his home, a village called Patuxet, which lay where modern Plymouth Day, where modern day Plymouth now stands. When he arrived at Patuxet, he found the entire village empty, having been decimated in his absence from the plagues between 1614 and 1620, which wiped out much of Native American tribes in New England and the Mar times. The pilgrims set a crooked course toward the new world. The people we call the pilgrims who founded Plymouth, Massachusetts, were religious separatists led by William Bradford. He applied for and received a land patent which gave them a claim to the mouth of the Hudson River at present-day New York City. The pilgrims, having fled from Holland, as they didn't care for their way of life, intended on settling a bit further north where the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam. But fate and strong winter gales blew them in a bit further north than they planned. In addition to the pilgrims, the group consisted of men looking for a new start who would be useful in carving out their survival in the most unexplored North American wilderness. Their military leader was Miles Standish, a name familiar to most grade school students in their study of the first Thanksgiving, and whose decisions would have disastrous and often fatal consequences for relations between the colony and Native Americans. All right, Plymouth has grown over the past four centuries, but in the center of town where European settlement in New England first took root, the past still lingers on. Layton Street, which follows more or less the original layout of Plymouth Plantation, is lined with colonial era houses and stores, as well as some of the earliest churches and civic buildings. 
tourism at the staple of Plymouth, and haunted tourism is going strong. But many of the stories lie behind private doors, where the people of Plymouth, steadfast New Englanders, like to keep their own secrets. The definitive guide of Haunted Plymouth is Ghosts of Plymouth, Massachusetts, by local historian and author Darcy Lee, which recounts in a single volume most of the legends and tales which have become part of haunted mythology of the town. Writes Lee, Plymouth is a lovely place to live and visit, but there is a darkness, a heaviness at times, and in places an impression that heartbreaks and misfortunes of the past are woven into the fabric that is Plymouth. A lot of heartbreak and tragedy can go down over 400 years, and Plymouth has seen its share of both. Lee manages to find the seldom-told stories of haunted Plymouth, families living in private homes which have been occupied and haunted over centuries, walking the streets one trod, once trod by the pilgrims and other earlier settlers. History is stacked atop itself in layers which sometimes seep through, and the atmosphere lends itself to mysterious and somewhat melancholy mood for some of the darkened disposition. Haunted Plymouth lays claim to being the only house in Massachusetts which is legally haunted. The Captain Thomas Phillips' house, following an 18th century court ruling, the tenants at the time reported doors and windows opening on their own and moved out, as well as other manifestations spreading their story throughout Plymouth of a former resident who lived beyond his watery grave, aided by the devil. In six, er, 1734, the landlord brought suit against the tenants, who made the claim that because of the hauntings, the house couldn't be lived in. What the court actually ruled was that the tenants' belief in ghosts couldn't be proven to be true or false, and therefore couldn't be claimed as slander. The same devils that were to afflict Salem took hold for a time in Plymouth as well, with different results. Though witchcraft was punishable by death in Plymouth, as it was in Salem, the only two cases brought to trial led to not guilty verdicts and fines for those who brought charges. Lee points to North Street as the beating heart of haunted Plymouth. There's one finds there one finds the Trask Museum, which once operated as a historic museum, full of exquisite Victorian furnishings and history. While the current generation of Trasks worked to resolve, restore the house, they were frequently interrupted by spectral footsteps, disembodied moaning and groaning, and doors opening and slamming closed without the aid of human hands. The museum is now host to ghost investigations open to the public, and run by Dead of Night Ghost Tours, which also runs Old North Street Tea and Curiosity Shop, which has its own place in Haunted Plymouth. Jan Williams, who runs the tours as well as the shop, claims that supernatural occurrences happen on an almost daily basis. Monthly investigations are held in the shop, where guests can stay overnight in their own haunted bedroom in what Williams believes to be the most haunted place in Plymouth tables moving by themselves, overnight guests waking to feel an invisible presence, breaths, breath on their face, are just some of what has been experienced here. Jan explained that to the Boston Globe why she believes that Plymouth is a vortex of supernatural energies. People died very young, very suddenly, and a lot of them have unfinished business, she says. 
They return to their places of comfort. Night after night, they are out there. Perhaps the creepiest supernatural resident of Plymouth is Abigail, an eight-year-old girl who died of an infected tooth at the Spooner House, also a museum now. She has opened the door for people, appeared in windows, and has even been spotted jumping rope in the alley next door. Hidden Charms in Haunted Plymouth In what Darcy Lee claims to be the most haunted house in Plymouth, a girl's shoe was found in the walls. This was a common practice in Britain and throughout Europe in the past, with thousands of shoes being found over the years. It is believed it is done to prevent hauntings, or the visitation by demons, witches, or other evil influences. Hidden objects, also called spiritual mitoms, have been found as far back as the choir stalls in Winchester Cathedral in Britain, which were installed in 1308. It is also believed that these gifts built into the house itself might have been to bestow fertility on the owners, which finds an ancestral memory in the practice of a bride throwing her shoe before leaving for the honeymoon, or tying shoes to the bumper of the wedding couple's car. Most examples of hidden shoes in the U.S. have been found in New England, heavily settled by the English, who seem to have brought the practice with them. And it could be that these gifts were meant for brownies or hobs, household fairies who wreak havoc on a home, but were thought to be placated by gifts of clothing. At any rate, the shoe didn't appear to do the trick in placating the spirits in the home. The modern John Carver Inn, near the town square, where King Philip's head stood on a pike for two decades, is believed to be haunted, thanks to being built on the location of a former house which stood there during Revolution. It is thought that medical students, of course, were stealing corpses, as mentioned in another article. The old courthouse in the town square is also thought to have its own ghosts. Window shades are pulled to the side by invisible hands when the building is empty, as though something inside wants to see out. Footsteps approaching when no one is there have been experienced, as well as the sound of melting ice echoing in the building, which was built in 1749. That sound can be traced to the unfortunate story of the Brigitine General Arnold, which became trapped in the ice in Plymouth Harbor and sank in 1776. The ship set sail on Christmas Eve that year, only to find itself in a blizzard on the open sea. Captain James McGee steered his ship into Plymouth Harbor, only to find that the blizzard prevented any pilots from coming to their aid to guide them safely into the harbor and avoid the shoals and sandbars, which would cause the ship to run aground. Desperate, they tried to reach the harbor, but ran aground with the tide, slipping or splitting the ship's seams, the crew was forced to ride out the storm with little shelter and no heat. When the people of Plymouth saw the ship and realized their fate, they came up with a plan to reach the sailors. Lashing together ice flows, they built a causeway to the ship. But when they reached the half-submerged ship, they found that 70 of the crew had already died, and the 33 who were alive, 9 of those died ashore. The courthouse was used temporary as a temporary morgue, and some of the bodies had to be lowered into the town brook to follow the bodies. They were interred in a mass grave at Burial Hill.
says, once the sun goes down, Burial Hill becomes the provinces of paranormal with apparitions such as pilgrims and Victorian-era parents kneeling at the children's graves, frequently spotted. Some say this cemetery is haunted by the husband and wife who lost their two-year-old daughter, Ida Elizabeth Spear. The Victorian couple is said to visit their daughter's nearby grave, approaching the Sumner Street. All right, it cut me off before I finished, but I do want to read that part again because it's pretty cool. Darcy Lee, the aforementioned author, believes Native American spirits protect the graveyard. In her book, Ghosts of Plymouth, Massachusetts, she writes, The tree has a peculiar feature. It has roots that look like hands. Some say a Native American guardian sits and watches over the people at that tree. If a visitor to Burial Hill does anything unacceptable or inappropriate, the guardian spirit will let them know in a terrifying fashion. Another Native American spirit, given the name Mary, also frightens people on occasion, pacing the stairs facing the town square and occasionally coming after visitors. Jeffrey Campbell, who operates Plymouth Night Tour, believes the old Burial Hill is home to a Native American cryptid which they call a puckwidgie, similar to the nature to a brownie or other European fairy. Mentioned in Longfellow's poem, The Song of Hiawatha, it's described as a possessing an abnormally large ears, nose, and fingers, and smooth gray skin. Campbell claims to have seen three of them dancing around the graveyard and hiding behind the graves of the sailors from the General Arnold. All of these spirits and ghosts remain a mystery, and likely always will. Today's life in town is much easier, less prone to sudden tragedy, and yet there are still ghosts being added to the pantheon of supernatural mysteries, which haunt Plymouth to this day. Alright, very cool. Alright, we go over to New England Innsandresorts.com, where they have an article called Six New England Ghost Stories. It's that time of year again. The leaves are popping in their autumn splendor. Wood smoke wafts through the air in the small New England towns. Pumpkins and mums appear on doorsteps, and whispers of our favorite New England ghost stories find their way into conversation. Every New England town has its own spooky folklore, inspired by the centuries-old graveyards and historic buildings that set the stage for hauntings and sightings throughout the region. Massachusetts Ghost Story, The Benevolent Spirit of Mrs. Woodman. In the early 2000s, a family renovated a beautiful Victorian home in Newton, Massachusetts. After finally moving in, it wasn't long before their five-year-old daughter, Juliel, began telling them stories of her friend, Mrs. Woodman, who lived on the third floor and wore, wore long dresses. Oh, and who also levitated slightly off the floor. The family was skeptical at first, but their daughter was insistent, so they did a little research. A Mr. and Mrs. Woodman had lived in that home in the late 19th century. The Woodmans had several children, as did Juliel's floating friend. All the details provided by Juliel about her ghostly friend matched public records exactly. Although the visitations from Mrs. Woodman herself ended five years after they started, 
she still causes some electrical mischief every now and then, keeping watch over the home and the family. Haunted Vermont, Unrequited Love at Emily's Bridge Some mysterious and conflicting reports shroud the story of Emily's death at the Cold Brook Covered Bridge in Stowe, Vermont. What isn't disputed is that years ago, a girl named Emily lost her life at that site after a jilted heart drove her to suicide. There's nothing like a fall drive in the Vermont, but avoid Emily's Bridge if you're taking that new hot rod out for a spin. There have been many reports of unexplained scratches and gouges in vehicles after they pass through the bridge, not to mention the poundings, footsteps, and whales that are commonplace at the site. This New England ghost story is one of the most famous in the state, and the hauntings continue to this day. Dancing in his grave in Maine. Colonel Jonathan Buck was one of the founders of Bucksport, Maine, called Buckstown back in the day. There are various iterations of this New England ghost story, but the tale goes something like this. Buck became convinced that a young woman in the town was a witch. Some accounts say that she was his mistress and sentenced her to death. Her very last words to the colonel were a vicious curse she swore that she would dance on his grave for all eternity. Buck died in 1795, and in 1852, his children memorialized his life with a monument near the site where he was buried. But that beautiful stone had a blemish that no sanding or solvent could remove. A small, dainty foot and leg-shaped stain down its side. The wronged woman remembered her promise and dances on Colonel Buck's grave to this very day. Spooks in Rhode Island, Little Mercy Lena Brown. Little Mercy Lena Brown died of tuberculosis centuries ago in Rhode Island town of Exeter. Tuberculosis swept across New England during the 18th and 19th centuries, instilling deep fear and superstition in the hearts of communities all around the region. It's become common belief that spirits of loved ones lost to illness would return, infecting other poor souls. To protect against this, Mercy's father exhumed his daughter's body and cremated some of her remains before burying her once again. Ever since that day, reports of little Mercy walking through the village, strange lights in the graveyard, and many other odd phenomena abound giving rise to another classic New England ghost story. There is a beautiful element to this beautiful spooky tale. As well, often, terminally ill patients in and around Exeter have encounters with Mercy near the ends of their life. She is seen as a shepherd of the terminally ill. A Curse in Connecticut, the village of Dudleytown. I think we've mentioned this one before in other episodes. Dudley Town was founded in the mid-18th century by the Dudleys, an English family that came to America and built a prosperous community. However, stories of freak accidents, short lives, and evil luck in the town prompted speculation. Were the Dudleys a cursed family? Was it the town itself that was cursed? Eventually, around the turn of the 20th century, the last dwindling residents gave up and left Dudley Town forever. Slowly, the forest swallowed the ghost town. Now on private property and heavily patrolled, you can only gain access with express permission. Those who have such a privilege describe an eerie silence with no birds or squirrels to be seen. 
an odd experience from the fairly mundane to outright paranormal. New Hampshire gets freaky. Faces in the windows. This may not be one of the most famous New England ghost story, but it's certainly one of the most chilling. It tells of an Appalachian Mountain Club crew member who headed up the slopes of Mount Washington in the spring to prepare one of the mountain huts for hikers and backpackers. With directions to radio his friends when he made it safely to the hut, the man headed up the mountain. But he never radioed back to camp, and when his friends still hadn't heard a thing by the next morning, they headed up the slope themselves. When they reached the cabins, they found all the windows still boarded up, and after minutes of searching and calling his name, found their friend cowering in a cabinet under the sink, an an axe clutched in his fists. It was only later, after he recovered in the hospital, that the man revealed this terrifying story. As he relaxed in the cabin, he felt a presence in the room, and turned to see a distorted face staring at him from between the glass and the boards covering the windows. His face was repeated in every single window, and seemed to push through the glass into the room. The rest of the night, including how and when he climbed into the cabinet under the sink, was erased from his memory. We go over to newenglandwithlove.com to a article called 13 Haunted Places in New England That Are Wicked and Creepy by Amy Hartle. One of the oldest selections of the United States, it's no surprise that New England has its fair share of ghost stories and haunted spots. History abounds in this region, and legends and tales of ghosts have sprung up from Connecticut to Vermont. Whether or not these tales are true, well, that's something you might have to decide for yourself. If you're brave enough, consider visiting one of the spooky haunted places in New England, whether at night or in the safety of day. Danvers State Hospital, Danvers, Massachusetts. When you think of scary places to visit in New England, right away everyone thinks of Salem, Massachusetts. However, one of the scariest places I've come across is in the neighboring town of Danvers. The Danvers State Hospital, which is also known as the Danvers State Insane Asylum, the hospital opened in 1878 with impressive Gothic architecture, which is also eerie and chilling. From an aerial view, the building is shaped like a bat with expansive wings. It was made up of more than one building, which all were connected by creepy underground tunnels. The hospital housed more patients than they should have, causing poor treatment and overcrowding. Patients were not treated kindly. Unfortunately, they were exposed to inhumane treatments such as shock therapies, lobotomies, drugs, and straitjackets. In fact, Experts call Danvers State Hospital the birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy. The hospital closed in 1985 and was left completely abandoned. People interested in the paranormal would try to enter the building with no success. According to one ghost expert, you could see a patient's ghost, but the building could manifest your inner fears, doubts, and agony. Now you can live on this property if you are brave. In 2005, they renovated and tore down some of the dilapidated buildings constructing 
beautiful apartments and condos. That being said, there are still graveyards for patients that passed away with no family or forgotten. If you walk down a hill, you will come across many markers, and sadly, most of them remain nameless. Stratford Shoal, Middle Ground Lighthouse, Connecticut. You know there was bound to be at least one haunted lighthouse in New England. Turns out there are several, but this one is especially creepy. Known as Middle Ground Lighthouse or Middle Ground Light, this 60-foot granite structure is set on a shoal in Long Island Sound. There are at least two creepy tales attached to this place. The first involves multiple suicide attempts by an assistant lighthouse keeper. The isolation of such a job took its toll on Julius Coster in 1905. After his attempts, he was taken to a sanitarium in New York, where he finally succeeded in killing himself from just a few days later. Reports of chaos such as loud grinding and crashing noises, mysteriously slamming doors, and even pots of hot water being tossed onto the floor from the stove make some think Coster's spirit is still hanging around Middle House Light, Middle Ground Light. The second haunted tale connected to the lighthouse is about the wreck of the ship trustful, which struck the shoal and sank, killing all on board. Interestingly, the ship's cargo was a load of church bells. Today it is said you can sometimes hear the sound of muffled church bells in the area when a storm is high. The Olsen House, Cushing, M.E. The state of Maine has an eerie feel about it, especially in the small towns that dot the midcoast and Penobscot Bay. The Olsen House in Cushing, Maine is such a place. Originally built in the late 18th century, the colonial farmhouse became home of Christina and Alvera Olsen in 1929. From 1939 to 1968, the house was also a central theme in the works of American artist Andrew Wyeth, whose poignant and haunted masterpiece Christina's World was a homage to his longtime friend, Christina, who had been paralyzed most of her life from a childhood illness. The house is open to the public, and a docent will guide you from room to room, bringing life to the story of the Olsons and their friendship with Wyeth. They've even reported hearing footsteps in the rooms above and doors being opened and closed late in the day. Many folks believe their spirits are still around and stay clear of the house once the sun sets. Alvaro, Christina, and Wyeth are all buried in the family plot, just down the hill. Look back towards the house and you can almost see Christina lying in the grass, immortalized forever on the canvas of Andrew Wyeth. Madame Cherie's Castle, Chesterfield, New Hampshire in the woods of Chesterfield, New Hampshire, stands a ghost from bygone era. There, eccentric social life Madame Antoinette Cherie built a mansion, her castle, where she hosted grand parties during the 1920s. The magnificent structure featured old-world stonework throughout. Sadly, after years of neglect, Madame Cherie's castle was destroyed by a fire set by vandals. All that remains today is the stone foundation and elegant stone spiral staircase Madame Cherie would descend to greet her visitors. Approaching the skeleton of the castle, you can't help but feeling the eeriness of the surroundings. 
The still-standing staircase, dubbed Stairway to Heaven, draws you in. Many people have climbed the staircase, recall feelings of dread, and there have been reports of seeing misty human figures around the grounds of the castle. Even skeptics like ourselves immediately felt the feeling of dread. Only the bravest venture there after sundown. Judge Corwin House, Salem, Massachusetts. You can't have a list of haunted spots in New England without including at least one from the dark town of Salem. While many spots might qualify, including many purportedly haunted hotels, one of the creepiest is Judge Corwin's house. Also known as the Witch House, this spot, home of Judge Jonathan Corwin, is the only structure still standing in Salem that has direct ties to the witchcraft trials of 1692. Its age may be one of the reasons it's so chilling, but it's also likely because of Corwin's role in the trials themselves, he oversaw the execution of 19 accused victims. Aside from that connection, other tragedies occurred in this house. Corwin and his wife had five children, all of which died young. Paranormal experience include visitors feeling cold spots in the house, ghostly touches on the skin, and even the occasional disembodied voice, including one which sounds like a little girl. Salem is said to be a very haunted town. Right? Colby Sawyer College, New London, New Hampshire. I went to Colby Sawyer College in New London, New Hampshire, which is known for having some haunted places around campus. Susan Swamp, the library, the cupola at Colgate Hall, etc. One in particular was McKean Hall, which is my dorm for three years. In McKean, there was a dumbwaiter elevator for the cleaning ladies to send supplies, vacuum, etc. from the floor to floor while she was cleaning. It only ran with a key and when she wasn't using it, it was always locked and off. However, it would still run randomly in the middle of the night on its own. One year, my room was right next to it, and it was always spooky to hear it run when no one else in the building was awake. Union Cemetery, Easton, Connecticut. Cemeteries have always held a certain eerie fascination for many. This one in Connecticut may be creepier than most, is frequently named one of the most haunted graveyards in America. A ghost known as the White Lady is the most often reported spectral sighting. She may be wearing a wedding dress or a white nightgown as she wanders between gravestones. Other visitors have talked about a sensation of being watched, with some seeing a pair of glowing red eyes gazing at them from a distance. There are many paranormal goings-on in this cemetery, there's even been a book written about the graveyard by well-known demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. Right? Battery Steel, Peaks Island, Maine. On the southeastern side of Peaks Island sits Battery Steel Military Reserve, the largest gun battery ever built in the United States. The tomb-like structure was originally built in 1942 as part of a coastal defense system meant to defend the mainland against attack from, during World War II. Its concrete walls are 18 inches thick, blanking out all light and requiring a flashlight to explore the rooms jutting off to the sides of two tunnels. 
The cold, dark corridors are said to be haunted by former soldiers. Many of the island's 858 permanent inhabitants have stories of ghostly encounters inside Battery Steel and the surrounding marshland. Visitors have reported their cell phones freezing and batteries suddenly draining upon stepping inside the structure. Many also talk of piercing screams coming from inside the tunnels and visions of soldiers in uniform. Right, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, Fall River, Massachusetts. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Growing up south of Boston in southeastern Massachusetts, I heard this rhyme a lot. This is what Lizzie Borden, a young woman who was accused of killing both of her parents with an axe in 1892, was taunted with her entire life. The house where Lizzie may or may not have killed her parents, she was never convicted, is in Fall River, Massachusetts. Now a bed and breakfast and museum, it is said the house is haunted. Guests lucky enough to get reservations can sleep in the John B. Morse room, where Lizzie's mother was murdered. Downstairs visitors can see the couch where her father died. Overnight guests can get an extensive tour that lasts about an hour and a half of the house. Full of the history and the murder case. The tour includes the basement, too. All right. We go now to the New York Times Post, where they have an article, How My Grandpa's Thanksgiving Ghost Story He Tells Each Year led us to uncovering a 189-year-old murder mystery by Chris Bradford. A grandpa's haunting Thanksgiving ghost story appeared to help two brothers uncover a near 200-year-old murder mystery. Bill and Frank Watson were told a chilling tale about 57 Irish immigrants who died on a railroad site in Pennsylvania during the cholera epidemic of 1832. The area is now known as Duffy's Cut, as the rail worker's boss was named Philip Duffy. It is a stretch of tracks located around 30 miles from Philadelphia. The brothers were told the chilling tale by their grandpa, a railroad worker, every Thanksgiving. They believed the rail workers died violently and not from cholera. Frank told CNN in 2010, this is a murder mystery from 178 years ago and it's finally coming to the light of day. According to local legend, a man walking home from a tavern claimed to see mysterious green figures dancing in the mist in September 1909. The documents quote the unnamed man as saying, I saw with my own eyes the ghosts of the Irishman who died with cholera a month ago, a dancing around the big trench where they were buried. It's true, mister. It was awful. Frank inherited the railroad papers from his grandpa and said one of the documents said, X marks the spot. They suspected that the files contained clues to the location of a mass grave. Bill and Frank delved deeper into the case. They started digging in 2002 and years later found forks and tobacco pipe shards. The brothers didn't believe struggling laborers would discard valuable items. Researchers in March 2009 found a bone, raising suspicions that the cholera may not have killed the rail workers. Teams also uncovered a skull that had been pierced by a bullet 
and cleaved by a hatchet, Reuters reported. Bill, a historian, said, We have no idea what percentage of these guys were murdered, but if we have 57, it's the worst mass murder in Pennsylvania history. Murder mystery. He said the average age of the workers was around 22 years old. Forensic anthropologist Jeanette Monge said the case provided vital clues about the lives of Irish immigrants. She said it was a cruel and rugged existence that characterizes their immigrant experience, and it speaks very broadly of the xenophobia that existed at the time. Monge discovered bones from at least seven skeletons, including four skulls. She said one skull had a little divot on what would have been the side bone of the skull. That little divot is something that didn't happen when they excavated it out of the ground. The anthropologist speculated that one of the laborers may have been clunked on the head before they died. Researchers believe more bodies are underneath the surface. Bill Watson said the coffins had been shut with more than 100 nails per coffin, according to a hidden city. The remains of five men and one woman from whom from those who died at Duffy's Cut were laid to rest at ceremony in Pennsylvania in 2012. The body of a teenager, Johnny or John Ruddy, was from the county Donegal, was repatriated to Ireland, and a burial took place in County Tyrone for Catherine Burns in October 2015. Forensics believe that injuries to her skull indicated that she had been murdered, the BBC reported. Duffy's Cut later became part of Pennsylvania's railroad main line. We go over to Boston.com, where they have an article, Four Spooky New England Ghost Stories You've Probably Never Heard Of. All right, by Dylan Dwyer. The Lady in Black. New England historian Edward Rowe Snow called this tale the region's most unusual ghost story. The story begins during the Civil War, around 1861, when a young Confederate soldier was captured and imprisoned at Fort Warren in George's Island in Boston, where no one would help the young man's wife get in touch with her husband. She decided to rescue him herself. Her name has been bandied around a lot, but most people call her Melanie Lanier. The legend is that she took the train up to Massachusetts, where she is said to have stayed overnight in Hull, with the island fort visible from shore. The next day, she is said to have dressed herself in men's clothing, caught a boat across the harbor island, and fought her way into the fort. Although she was apparently able to free her husband from the cell during the escape attempt, they were caught, Rodina said. She attempted to shoot a soldier who was trying to intercept them, and instead the gun misfired, and she killed her own husband. As Snow tells it, the soldier and his wife had planned to take over the fort, rather than escape. When they were discovered in the ensuing fight, her husband was fatally wounded. It was discovered she was a woman, and she was told she would be executed as a spy. According to Snow, as her last request, she asked that she be given a lady's dress to wear. She was executed by hanging, and seven weeks later, soldiers saw the freshly fallen snow, the imprint of a lady's slipper, across the grounds. The imprint led to nowhere. In another version of the tale, Regina said, 
When the soldiers discovered she was a woman, they didn't have any clothing for a lady, so they dressed her in a black cloak before she was executed. The legend, he said, is that her ghost, complete with a great black cloak, returns at all hours to haunt the fort, particularly anyone wearing a soldier's uniform. They say specifically that her ghost still haunts the fortress, and that unlike most ghost stories, that she is to be a very violent ghost. They say that what she's when she's been spotted, she actually lashes out. That people experience scratches and cuts and being pushed. That she's both an angry and violent ghost. Snow's version of the tale is in the one park rangers at the fort shares informally with interested visitors. A very important part of our interpretation of the story is informing the visitors of its falsehood. Despite this, we have many visitors eager to hear it. All right, a witch, a curse, and a stained monument. We've already heard about this one, so we'll skip it. The Curse of Micah Rood. This peculiarity has been the subject of investigation, but no theory accounts for its plausibility as the traditions of Michael Rood's curse, the Times reported. Rodina said the story of Micah Rood and his apples take place in the early 1700s in the area of Franklin and Wyndham Connecticut. He is said to have these amazing apples and was fiercely protective of his orchards and his strain of apples. The legend, according to the Times, is that one day a peddler carrying valuable jewelry was found murdered, his pack rifled through, under an apple tree on Reed's farm. Even though the farmer denied knowledge of the crime, the Times said suspicion attached itself to him. He became morose and moody and never prospered afterwards. The next fall, apples from the tree where the murdered man was found were filled with the bloody heart. They said it was the silent judgment upon him and the dying peddler's curse upon the head of his destroyer had come home to roost upon Rude's apple tree, the Times wrote. In the Times telling, Rude dies soon after the appearance of the apples. But Rodina presented a version with an alternate ending. After the rumor began circulating that the farmer had murdered the peddler, Rude withdrew from society. When he hadn't been seen for some time, the townspeople went to look for him. When they went to find him, they found that he hung himself in one of the trees in his orchard. After his death, Rodina said the red appeared on the core of his apples. But there's still yet another telling. The legend of Michael rude in 1879 or 1876 in that version rude had killed the peddler a german out of revenge his father had been killed by a frenchman and he mistakes the foreigner as being from france when a flyer arrives in town announcing the peddler's friends in philadelphia are offering a reward for information about their missing german friend rude realizes his mistake in order to get the reward money from his mother, he writes a confession sharing that the body of the peddler can be found under an apple tree on his property. He then hangs himself in the orchard. And I think that will do it for today. All right. Thanks for being a part of today's Thanksgiving episode and hearing about our dark past and the origins of Thanksgiving all the way to... You know, Ghost of New England. Very cool stuff. So, in speaking to that, 
Um, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Um, if you celebrate it, great. If you don't, great. <laughs> All I got to say is stay spooky, my friends. Oh, yeah. And join us on the Facebook page at Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. Spooky Shiz is in parentheses. All right. Yeah. Stay spooky. <laughs>